Okay, we're going to uh, proceed to the uh, fourth panel, uh, which is the art history and architecture panel. And uh, I'd like to introduce the uh, moderator, Charlotte Houghton, from the Department of Art History, who will introduce uh, the other panelists. And obviously there are slides, and so I hope you can move forward if you would like and um, uh, make sure you're seated where you can view the slides well. Thank you, Mar. Uh, yes, I'm Charlotte Houghton from Art History, and I'm joined by my colleagues Brian Curran from Art History and Daniel Purdy from German and Slavic languages, Germanic and Slavic languages. Um, and we all have also brought a number of other people with us today who are probably more important than we in our, in our story, and we thought we'd introduce them briefly. Uh, Brian is going to give you a bit of a montage of a few of the people joining us. Yeah, okay, here we go. Here's our, here's our attempt at something a little gimmicky, so let's see how it works. Oh, Caravaggio. Holzius. Peter Rubens. El Greco. Some of these people are kind of older. Some of them are just starting out. But in our period, they're all, oh, Inigo Jones. <laughs> Anthony Van Dyke is with us. John Lorenzo Bernini. Well, this guy, Rembrandt. Rembrandt, Van Rijn. Yeah. Artemisia Gentileschi. Nicholas Poussin. Diego Velasquez. And of course, not to be left out, Anibale Caracci. Okay. Our stars. Well, we'd be lo looking at some of their work and actually work of a couple of other people as well. Um, I brought a very important, I think, female artist from the time period who did not paint a very nice self-portrait of herself, I think, so I Couldn't spared you that. You'll, you'll see her beautiful pictures here. Um, w there are a few themes that we want to discuss at the end of this, and we'd like all of you to think about as we go through our individual fields. Um, one is that um, we are seeing the effects of the Protestant and Catholic Reformations in artwork in this period. Uh, Rani Shah did not talk much about the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation because in religion these things are somewhat more settled by this time, but we're really seeing the, the fallout of those huge, huge European uh, conflicts and issues in this period. And of course then we entered the Thirty Years' War toward the end of this period. Um, another is the rise of artistic branding by art stars running factories. Not to draw too much of a parallel between Rubens and Andy Warhol, but there is this sense of these stars who have whole hordes of uh, studio factory workers under them who are producing paintings to their design, not necessarily by their hand. Okay? Um, the interrelated growth of collecting, exploration, and the taste for the exotic. This feeds into the reverberations in the European art collecting uh, world of some of those overseas explorations, distant explorations that other panels have talked about. Um, also, and I think this, this um, ties in very interestingly with what Bettina had to say earlier, uh, the, the visual investigation of states of interiority, of states of human psychology uh, demonstrated in front of the in front of the viewer. And what struck me as interesting is it includes the, the demonstration of human subjectivity to be seen from someone else's subject perspective. Okay, so, the, so subjectivity as the object of the gaze. 
So I think that that's, uh, that's, that's quite interesting. Okay, um, I wanted to start, if I may, with um, a few people from my neck of the woods, which is mainly Northern Europe, uh, although I'm, I have taken a, oops, excuse me, I've taken it upon myself to uh, include a few people from outlying areas of mine. This is, um, this is of course, Peter Paul Rubens, uh, whose uh, early years of the century were spent in Italy honing his craft, and then he made a triumphant return in 1609 to the city of Antwerp. From there, he was adopted by courts throughout Europe, and of course, we're ending this with um, his 1625 uh, marriage of Marie de Medici series, um, and he became the darling of the courts of Europe. His first protege and later rival, Anthony van Dyck, was working first in Antwerp, moved into Genoa, and then moved to London, where he became one of the most important portraitists in, um, in England. I, I have to show people this uh, portrait of the Antwerp merchant Cornelius van der Heest, which I think is one of the most phenomenal portraits in the history of art, and most people don't know about it, and so I wanted to, to say a word for that. In a somewhat different vein, we have working in Harlem the artist Hendrik Holtzius, who is in some ways a what? Oh. A, sorry about that. I'll take care of it. Okay, you do it for me. <laughs> it's his thing. Okay, Hendrik Holtzius, who is in some ways a, a holdover from those heady days of mannerism. What's interesting about Holtzius is that he was a, um, a, the preeminent printmaker, I would say, in Europe at this time. Some of my colleagues might disagree with this, but I, I think that he, he was. Um, but in 1600, at the start of our period, he gave up making prints and moved to painting. And I think it's interesting to see his transition. And the image we're looking at on the left is a very, is an image that both is part of his transition and demonstrates that transition in which he is making one, what he called a pen painting in which he drew lines on a panel to make it look as if he had created an etching, an engraving, excuse me, an engraving, and then began to fill it in with paint. And the title of the work is Without Ceres and Bacchus, Venus Freezes. And in, in this actual image, he is beginning to show that without paint and color, his engravings have frozen. I think it's, it's an astonishing image. This, by the way, is in the, uh, in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, if, any, if you want to see it. Forward, please. Franz Hals. The headline here, I think, is that for the first time, the sitter smiles. And this is one of the uh, developments of interiority as a subject, as a, as a subject of representation that um, I think is important to look at in this period. Um, Howells really began with more buttoned-up portraits of the bourgeoisie and his very expressive uh, portraits of street urchins up in the left, and his uh, contribution in some ways was to marry these genres, to marry the, re the, uh, the representation of lower-class figures with the traditional representation of upper-class figures into a new sort of genre of portraiture that reflects a lot more of the, the interior state of the, of the person. Next. Clara Paters, still-life painter in Antwerp at the time. Um, I'm afraid she has to stand in as the poster child for a host of genres that were developing rapidly in this time. 
before about 1600, there really was not, there did not exist genres of landscape, still life, marine painting as we know them today. These were uh, genres that developed in the competitive uh, cauldrons of northern European cities. Uh, also, in some ways, in some part in response to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which um, uh, me meant that there was much less church patronage in Northern Europe than there had been in the past, and therefore uh, there were new secular forms of art that were coming to the fore. Uh, by the way, in this on the right, as an 18-year-old woman artist, she challenges basically the master Jan van Eyck by portraying herself multiple times in, uh, uh, in a self-portrait in the various uh, protuberances of this goblet, uh, really mimicking him but doing him one better by showing that she can tell the optics of reflection from every single little vantage point in the room. Okay. All right, please. And Rembrandt in this period still uh, really a rather second-rate history painter, if I may say so hadn't really developed into the person that we would, if you'd hit the next one, later know as the wonderful self-portraitist Rembrandt. His, et his, his etching technique was rudimentary at best, and I think it's important to remember that there were artists who were struggling in this moment, and really it's about the year after this period ends that Rembrandt takes off and follows his own, his own path. Next, please. In Spain, we have El Greco coming to the end of his career. Um, after an early career in Crete, he has moved on to Venice and then finally settled in Spain, in Toledo, where he becomes the, uh, the preeminent Catholic Reformation artist of the period there and paints his most terrifically visionary works. And finally, Diego Velazquez in Spain, who uh, in this period is developing that sense of um, still working in his hometown of Sevilla uh, and developing that startling naturalism that will bring him later to the uh, attention of the Spanish court and turn him into one of the greatest court artists in Europe. And just one more slide, not to be forgotten, one more, okay, are the fabulous decorative arts of Europe in this time. What you're looking at on the right is a ewer by Adam van Vianen from uh, the Netherlands from 1614 that is basically a, a form that looks like it is molten silver still moving in front of your eyes. On the left, a cabinet of wonders to hold other cabinet, other items of wonder for those collections that I mentioned having developed in this period. Now I want to turn it over to my colleague Brian and he will talk about Southern Europe in this time. Thanks, Charlotte. I'm going to talk actually about a place, um, mostly Rome, but the reason I'm gonna do this is because I think I took a kind of a micro model for this idea because I was agonizing thinking about this idea of moments of change and, and change as a concept and what does change mean and change versus continuity and these things and so I began thinking about how I might explain instrumentality, you know, the, how cha what, what change is, how it might work, how we could see things go from one thing to another. Okay, so how do I do it? Well, I came up with three additional words in addition to the ones we had, which are um, essentially rivalry, emulation, and mutation. 
which is my personal favorite because I'm not quite sure what I mean by this, but I'm start a moment of change, which I have focused on here, is at the, e at the end of 1592, the beginning of 1593, the arrival of Michelangelo Marisi da Caravaggio um, in Rome from Milan. A young, very young painter, uh, in his, just entering his early 20s. Uh, he's come out of uh, an interesting situation. Born in Milan, raised in a village outside named Caravaggio, uh, where his father worked for uh, the Marchesa of this town of Caravaggio, uh, Francesco Sforza. He comes to Rome pursuing, uh, go going, essentially going for, I guess what you could, could say was the big time, but also pursuing uh, certain possible family connections through the Colonna family. Uh, the, his father has died. Uh, as has the Marchesa, uh, but uh, the family is uh, connected through marriage to the Colonna family, great barons of Rome. And Rome at this time, in the 1590s, is going through a kind of explosion, an explosion of expenditure on the building of churches, the renovation of churches, the renovation of the city, art projects of various sorts. I'm showing you here from the uh, Hall of Maps in the Vatican a view of Rome. You can see all the roads leading out uh, all roads lead to Rome. Caravaggio would have come in basically uh, from this direction, from the north. Uh, the, re the, the work going on at the St. Peter's complex, the dome's been finished. Uh, the obelisk has been moved all under Sixtus V in the 1580s. It, it's a time when uh, there might be a chance at uh, getting some plum assignments and really making a career for himself. Painting in Rome at the time, uh, established artists uh, who are producing works Federico Barocci, whose visitation is in the Chiesa Nuova in Rome. Pardon the underline there, I was trying to get rid of that. Or uh, Giuseppe Cesare, uh, the Cavaliere d'Arpino, uh, who uh, actually be becomes an employer of Car the very young Caravaggio earlier on. We're looking at a work produced in the, around the time he showed up, uh, showing the raising of Lazarus. A kind of, uh, in, in the case of uh, uh, the Cavaliere d'Arpino, a kind of a late mannerism. I guess you could call it a sort of a maniera style. In the case of Barocci, something a bit more uh, I don't know, a bit more uh, interesting perhaps, a bit more uh, idiosyncratic, uh, a painter who's basically sending his things down from Urbino. These are the kinds of big time commissions that are happening in Rome in the period of uh, Clement VIII. Caravaggio establishes himself at first as a painter of little pictures. Uh, I guess you could call this his sexy young boy period, his small paintings, which seem to have been produced uh, in the shop while he was working for uh, Cesare, uh, the Calviari d'Arpino, and which uh, were put out on, to a certain extent, on the art market at the time. There actually was an art market, pl places where people could go to display their works and they would be purchased. Um, here we see the boy with a basket of fruit and the self-portrait as the so-called young or sick Bacchus. Both of these were requisitioned by Cardinal Scipione Borghese from the Cavaliere d'Arpino in 1607. They seem to have been produced in the shop uh, then. These are the beginning of his reputation, very interesting works. Um, he also produced a painting called, a little bit later called The Card Sharps, now in the Kimball Art Museum in Texas, which was purchased uh, from the market by Cardinal Francesco Maria del Monte, who actually becomes his first patron, invites him to move into the house. Uh, Caravaggio produces the musicians for him, continuing on and expanding on what we see are a couple of major themes here, continuing with the young pretty boys, these sort of enticing uh, world of the, of the earlier pictures, and these uh, street scene kind of pictures, these genre pictures, which are both rooted in Lombard tradition, but also in the tradition that's very popular in Rome, northern painters, Roman painters producing this kind of thing. 
then we begin to get what I would call, maybe perhaps under the pressure of rivalry, I'm to a certain extent calling this mutation, or certainly a move to, ma to maturity, uh, something a little more ambitious out of Caravaggio, uh, paintings, religious paintings, larger scale, produced for private patrons, like this great one, probably perhaps my favorite Caravaggio, it gives you a sense of my taste, the Judith Beheading Holofernes <laughs> of 1599, uh, which was uh, commissioned or purchased by a banker uh, who owned a few Caravaggios at this time. Here, I think this interior, interior I don't know if I can say that, interiority of, of, uh, that, uh, that Charlotte was talking about, this representation of subjective states uh, to be observed, I think especially not so much even the gruesomeness, uh, the violence, uh, the, the scream of, uh, of uh, Holofernes, but that expression on Judith, that, that purposeful, somewhat repelled, but got to stick to the business kind of face, it's really something a little, uh, really, really quite powerful. And also the beginning of what we begin, also we're beginning to see really something which uh, later generations, when they wrote about Caravaggio and his innovations, would attribute to be his big innovations. Um, the use of live models and the use of a single light source, usually elevated against a kind of dark background. Where Caravaggio really steps out uh, with his production of his great breaks around 1599, 1600, first at the Contarelli Chapel in San Luigi dei Francesi, a cycle of St. Matthew pictures, which he probably got uh, through his connection to Cardinal Del Monte. Um, fantastic uh, painting, which is over on the right, showing the martyrdom of St. Matthew. And then we also have uh, St. Matthew and the Angel, which had to be replaced, the first of a series of replaced works, uh, of controversial works. And what I think is uh, the real groundbreaker, The Calling of St. Matthew from 1599-1600, um, an astonishing painting uh, to place into a church at this time, uh, where the street kind of, the, the street world that Caravaggio had specialized in has become something which is thrown up to, I think, rival the works of the greatest painters in Rome, and not certainly his contemporary, certainly contemporary painters, but also great masters of the past. I'm thinking specifically of someone like, say, Michelangelo with that pointing figure of Christ, uh, and also painters like Raphael, but turned into something which is essentially entirely new and also uh, challenging, I think quite deliberately challenging. Uh, Anibale Caracci has arrived in Rome at this time too, um, presenting a new kind of rival rivalry situation for him with his great productions uh, in the Galleria Farnese. And then Caravaggio is commissioned to produce paintings alongside a painting by Caracci, a deliberate setup. Rivalry is also something which is promoted by patrons, and I think this is interesting. This isn't new in the period, but it's something which is, which is, um, which we actually can go back to the High Renaissance to look at where we have the high altar piece by Enable Carace in Santeria Mello Popolo in the Terrazzi Chapel and the fantastic, uh, amazing side panels which were produced by Caravaggio. Yeah? Fast? Move on, move on, move on. Move on. Not an org. An org. Move on.org. And here we go with that <laughs> by one of the great pictures. This, this incredible, powerful realism that he brings to his religious pictures. Now, what happens is, I think, that Caravaggio's success, uh, to a certain extent controversial, also prompts other artists to imitate him. And Marika's mentioned the Baglione, uh, which has uh, just arrived today. I've seen it in Charlotte this morning, uh, actually around noon. We went over to see it. And thanks to Patrick McGrady for showing us the, the picture, which was produced uh, for a cardinal in Rome in 1603 by Baglione 
in obvious emulation of Caravaggio, which Caravaggio seems to have resented deeply. He and friends of his wrote scurrilous uh, verses uh, attacking Baglione. So we have here a case where emulation is met with the rivalry impulse. Very interesting. Then we have, of course, the great tradition of further emulation of Caravaggio, which becomes more, that would be sort of first generation when he's still in Rome, in the period after he leaves uh, by uh, an artist like Artemisia Gentileschi, her great Judith beheading Holofernes. Uh, her father had been actually a co-author of the anti-Baglioni poems. And finally, uh, the, an artist I did not want to leave out, just for the point of view of talking about this, also this, in, uh, this representation of the subjective into something which is to be viewed. Uh, I'm comparing Caravaggio's uh, spectacular Medusa on a shield uh, commissioned by Cardinal Del Monte to give to Ferdinando de' Medici to Bernini's early work. Bernini, quite a prodigy. You can see here he's barely out of his teens when he produces The Damned the Dam Soul. According to the story, he left, put his hand, it's, it's an urban legend, he put his hand into a flame to, to, to feel burn so that he could do it. The fact that the urban legend exists tells you something about the kind of, of acting that perhaps painters and sculptors were actually indulging in here. This, of course, becomes the model for the great spectacular performative career of Bernini in his works for uh, Scipione Borghese, also an avid Caravaggio collector, and this idea of rivalry again, and also pursuing the idea of the work of art pushed beyond its boundaries in the great works of the 1620s, which bring up to 1625 and my end. Okay. All right, I had to rush, sorry. <laughs> Uh, in, in architectural history, the grand narratives of architectural history will tend to define uh, Italian uh, and European architectural history into the Renaissance, Mannerism, and the Baroque. And the period that we're talking about uh, today is very much seen as, as an interlude between precisely all these three large categories. So that is to say, we don't get to have a, a, you know, the impressive selection of masterpieces that were there in the 16th century or that come later on in the 17th century. Um, as we get, um, except with the hint of it in being Bernini, who then, who does also move on to uh, build architectural augmentation to St. Peter's in the form of the plaza in front of it or in the terms of the baldachin of the altar underneath the dome. Um, the period that uh, what I wanted to emphasize in terms of architectural history is precisely the movement between Southern Europe and Northern Europe. That is to say, what we have is the diffusion of Renaissance Italian architecture across uh, Northern Europe, and we also have a kind of movement back and forth between Italy and the Ottoman Empire, that is to say, relationships that are also those of rivalry. Um, and so what I wanted to pick on, um, and somewhat, uh, this movement, let's say, of, uh, of architecture is made possible partially by people traveling to Rome, which is obviously a center for um, all kinds of artists and architects to go visit. And there is obviously this long-standing tradition that all architects go to Rome, and even Penn State uh, architectural students in their junior year go to Rome. Um, and so that tradition continues uh, unabated, and, and, and uh, deservedly so. So one of the architects that, that does so is Inigo Jones. And I bring him up simply because it, he's a contemporary of Shakespeare. Um, and he really is the architect who is seen as the first major architect in England. Um, he is the one who introduces Renaissance Italian architecture to um, the British Isles um, and is very much associated with uh, the, the relationship between monarchical uh, power and Renaissance architecture. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, 
that's better that way. So we get a picture of Inigo Jones looking Elizabethan. You should. Anyway, here he is. There he is. Okay. And there, there, there he is up there. And, and what we have there is the banqueting house, which is one of the surviving structures of, of, of Westminster Palace, which burned down at the end of the 17th century. But this building is, in, is one of the things that survived. And it's very much in the manner of Renaissance uh, and very much taken from uh, or, or derived from or done in, in memory of and honor of Andrea Palladio who is uh, considered to be a high Renaissance architect, born 1508, dies in 1580. But in 1570, he did one of the best things that he ever did, um, which was to publish his four books on architecture, um, which were responsible. All the people have been talking prior to about book print as being such of a very important factor. And one of the things that made Palladio a celebrity throughout Europe in the following centuries was his very attractive book with very clear, precise images and his explanations in very modest uh, Italian. Um, and Inigo Jones travels to Rome. He's sent to Rome um, uh, by royal patronage and uh, in order to study Roman ruins. But along the way, like so many people, discovers Andrea Palladio in northern Italy, who had built a series whose, whose career was in northern Italy, in Venice, in the Veneto, in Vicenza, where he had built most of his pala uh, palazzi. Now, the thing that we have now that, that is so interesting about book culture and so forth, and I actually brought a book straight out of the library, um, which is uh, the facsimile of Inigo Jones's annotated uh, edition of Palladio. That is to say, after he died, he bequeathed his books back to his college, Worcester College. And so what people do nowadays is they study not only Palladio, but all the scribblings of Inigo Jones um, that he writes in the margins and so forth. And so you can see just how important the book is in terms of the diffusion of architecture. Now, Architecture can't be just experienced by a book. You obviously have to go and be inside the building, around the building, walk in it. But at the same time, it's the book then that makes it possible. OK, so just to speed things along. Um, perhaps we have some pictures that we can move on of. Uh, this is, again, Banqueting Hall in London. And then we, after that, we'll have some more pictures. This is the interior with paintings of Rubens on the top, which caused the building to become so precious and valuable that they stopped having masks and only had very form banquets for fear of the building burning down, as the rest of the palace did only a few decades later. Um, the interior, I mean, <coughs> English architectural historians will say that there isn't a detail in Inigo Jones that you can't find in Andrea Palladio's book. What's innovative about Inigo Jones is simply is that he changes, readapts, um, and in many ways simplifies the classicism of Andrea Palladio to make it much, uh, much less in this sort of mannerist, uh, over-the-top manner that we will see in Palladio, if we can keep going here. Um, this is the Basilica in Vicenza, which was Pal Andrea Palladio's first uh, commission as a very young man in the 16th century, but it's built to completion only in 1617 in this period, which tells you something that construction in this period takes a very, very long time. And one of the factors that slows things down are wars um, and shortage of cash that is produced by the inability to pay for such a large undertaking. And in this case, it's the wars between Venice and the Ottoman Empire that in many ways slows down a lot of the projects. Um, if we could keep going. And here we have uh, pa Palazzi in, in Vicenza, which are 
squeezed up in narrow streets where you can't really get a full uh, view from the front. And this is one of the effects that Palladio is famous for. And one of the things that Inigo Jones clarifies is the idea that the banqueting house you can see from a distance. It isn't squeezed in. And so therefore, it doesn't have this kind of overwhelming, crushing feeling that you get by looking at these pictures. If we could keep going to the next. Um, and here we have two images, great, combined. This is the Villa Rotunda on top and Il Redentore, um, which is a church that was built in honor of the plague uh, leaving Venice. And the, the, the Villa Rotunda, I just want to point out, is simply this country villa. It's probably the most famous villa in Italy. It's uh, built with an allusion to the, to the Pantheon in Rome, uh, which was built or rebuilt in 125 AD by the Emperor Hadrian, which is a dome, which so it was the largest dome in Italy at the time. And so there are many allusions to it in Palladio's uh, architecture as well. And on the bottom, we have an image of um, the church which was built, which was finished in the, fi in the 1590s. And I want to just call briefly attention to it so that the next slide, as my time slips away, <laughs> Um, which is um, the, uh, the mosque, the uh, uh, Sultan Ahmed Mosque, uh, that was built in 1609 uh, to 1616 by uh, Mehmet Pasa, who was a student of Sinan. And mm. Sinan is largely seen as the most significant uh, architect in the Ottoman Empire, a contemporary of Palladio. And one of the points that is often brought out is the rivalry between Venice and Istanbul in terms of building domes, in terms of building houses of worship that had the largest dome. And the two sources of reference to antiquity in Istanbul is the Hagia Sophia, and in Italy it would be the Pantheon in Rome. And so there's an ancient reference to, in all these uh, guys, but at the same time there's a rivalry between Italy, particularly Venice and Istanbul, in terms of building the largest dome. And, and this is something that consciously is, is, is a goal for Sinan and for his student. The thing that distinguishes the tradition is its continuity, whereas in Europe you have religious wars, whether they be in France, uh, which bring a screeching halt to construction projects, whether they are in Central Europe in, this, in the form of the Holy Roman Empire, or later on in England where Inigo Jones's career is brought to a halt by the Civil War in England, again putting an end to a tradition that then doesn't get picked up again until the 18th century with a whole new mode of Palladianism that, uh, that you know, extends out into the United States and, 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 and had an influence on the colonies where Thomas Jefferson's Monticello is clearly a legacy of that long tradition that links the United States through Inigo Jones to, to Palladio and brings us all the way down to Virginia. Thanks. Okay. I think we're <laughs> we'll save discussion for later. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably be some.